Good morning, everybody at 502. Morning. 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 Lovely to be with you this morning. I wasn't actually intending to be here in the sovereignty of God. I was obviously meant to be here, but um, uh, one of my uh, co-leaders, Dan Lawford, is meant to preach here this morning. He's not well, so this is a real surprise. I haven't been down here for a while on a Sunday morning, but I am delighted to. I've had a bit of a nightmare this morning. I'm not going to lie to you. I preached at Alder Road before I came down here. I got parked in in the car park, thought there's no ways I'm getting down to 502. And then, brilliantly, this has never happened to me before, I lost the last page of my sermon. So I got to the end of my sermon all the road, and I was like, and that's why we need to... Just made it up. So I'm hoping I serve you better than I serve them. I think I'll just preach some heresy down there. I'm not entirely sure, but um, <laughs> let's see how we go. Um, I work for the church. In the uh, church office, we've got a, uh, a Dilbert calendar. Does anyone know who Dilbert is? Anyone read the comic strips? There's, um, there's, Dilbert's a, a really funny comic strip done by a guy called Scott Adams, and it's well known for its kind of satirical office humor about a, a white-collar, micromanaged office um, and, uh, featuring an engineer called Dilbert as the title character. And, and the brilliance of the strip is that it really pokes fun at the world of corporate employment and the often unnecessary levels of bureaucracy and health and safety and general mismanagement that essentially lead to lots being said, but just not a great deal being done. Let me share a couple with you. These are two of my favorites. There's Dilbert in the middle there. What's your take on this, Dilbert? What? Sorry, I was using the time to think about something useful. Maybe your boss can fill you in. I was brain golfing. <laughs> Dilbert, brilliant. Let's have a look at another one. Our new strategy is to make great products and sell them at a fair price. What was our old strategy? I'd rather not say. <laughs> It'll hit you later on. <laughs> the reason I've uh, shown you a Dilbert comic strip um, today is because uh, we're actually looking today at the whole topic of work. We're in the middle of a preaching series, as you know, going through the book of 1 Peter. The series, as you probably know, is called Faithful in Exile. And uh, the big idea is that Peter, who uh, is one of the close friends of Jesus, is writing to the churches throughout modern Turkey, who at the time are living under the Roman Empire and working out what it looks like to live as a Christian serving Jesus, but also within the requirements and constraints of the Roman Empire with all of its cultural and social and political implications. And so in that sense, they're kind of like exiles. They're, they're living out the values of one kingdom, the kingdom of God, but they're doing it under the rule of another kingdom, the, the kingdom of Caesar. And that creates for them a strange and often quite dangerous tension, just as it might for us in different ways in the 21st century, living as Christians, but in an increasingly godless society. And because of the way these two kingdoms work, almost nowhere is this felt as acutely as in the place of work or trying to work out what it means to be a worker. And so um, we're going to look at one verse this morning. This is just 11 little words written to first century Christians, but just as relevant to us today about work, about how we are meant to work, about what it means to work, and how we, as slaves to Christ, are meant to approach it. So this is um, from a passage of scripture, which is helpfully entitled, Living Godly Lives in a Pagan Society. The verse will come up behind me now, 1 Peter 2.18, slaves, in reverent fear of God, 
submit yourself to your masters. In other words, just as those of us here who are followers of Christ could in some way count ourselves as servants of Christ, and we're called to gladly surrender to his, to the master's will, we should reflect that also in an earthly sense as we go about our day-to-day life and work. That's what exiles do. They reflect something of their home culture in a strange land. As someone raised in South Africa, myself, if you get up close and personal with me and get to know me, you'll quickly find things that are distinct to my culture and upbringing. But I'm working that out living in Britain, under the authority of Britain, with a British wife and British kids. But what does that mean for Christian workers in 21st century Britain? Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourself to your masters. Now, if you're sitting here today and you're a homemaker or a retired person or a student and you think, um, if, if you aren't employed in some way and you think this just doesn't apply to me, well, buckle up, because it does. Because we are all workers and we all have a master. And we need to get a decent theology of work into us to do it well. So before we go any further, let me just draw out some distinctions here. There's a difference and a distinction that I want to draw between work and employment. Employment is clearly an important part of work, but I want to draw on a wider definition of work this morning for essentially two key reasons. And the first one is that employment tends to get its primary definition from being a means of earning money. And therefore, we often give more value to those who earn more money. And that's not necessarily the most helpful biblical definition of work. And then secondly, repeatedly in Scripture, we're exhorted and encouraged to join with God in his work, to be co-laborers in the coming of the kingdom and the spread of the gospel. And so in that sense, we're all called to be workers with a master in every season of life for our whole lives. So in that sense, when uh, Peter's talking about servants and and masters and how we are to be at work, I'm going to broaden out his instructions in order to give us A, a theology of work, and B, an encouragement to get to work. Is that clear? Great. Okay, well, let's get started. Yeah, everything else was just preamble. Here comes the really good stuff. Okay. Let's start by looking at work came from. I think you've got to go back to the very beginning. God was obviously at work himself in the creation, right in the beginning, forming the world out of all the raw materials of the universe, which incidentally he'd also created. And then, as the pinnacle of his work, as the very summit of his work, he created us, it says, us, in his image. That's important. And then he straight away puts us to work. Let's look at this together. All the way back in Genesis 1 verse 28, the very first chapter of the Bible, God says to Adam and Eve, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So if you were to bullet point that, be fruitful 
and increase in number, or fill the earth, and then subdue it, or rule over creation. It's right there at the start of time as part of God's original design for us, and therefore, it's our original assignment. It's our first commandment. It's our commission. It's important that we get that. And here's another fun fact for you. It never says that we're meant to do that and then stop at age 55 and draw down a state pension. Clearly, that's part of employment and how we do it. But um, it also doesn't say that you only start doing this when you draw your first salary. And so let me tell you this. Work is for all of us. And the, matter, and the fact of the matter is that God is at work. He always has been, and he always will be. And so when we work according to these criteria, we image God in some way. And that gives all legitimate work incredible dignity. Whether you're a stay-at-home parent, caring for older people, serving in the church, plastering walls, working at Bournemouth Uni, working for J.P. Morgan, directing films, fixing cars, whatever you're doing, it all images God at some level. And even more importantly, I want to show you how I believe it can also help us to fulfill this commission to be fruitful and to fill the earth and to subdue it and to rule over it. And my intention this morning is to help you to see through this little passage in 1 Peter, these 11 words, and through the original work mandates that I've just read to you from Genesis 1, how you can connect any productive, legitimate action you engage in with God's work in the world. And if that doesn't make you spring out of bed with renewed vigor tomorrow morning, you can listen to this all again tomorrow on the website. Okay. Let's look at the Genesis 1 work mandate in more detail. If, if Adam and Eve were meant to increase in number and fill up the world, the question should be, well, what were they meant to fill up the, the world with? And the answer to that question is themselves. But the next question should then be, well, why? Who, who are they? And it says they are image bearers. It says so in the verse just before this original work mandate in Genesis 1 that I've just read you. So here we go. Genesis 1.27. Listen to this. So God made mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That's pretty clear. Next verse again. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over it, blah, 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 etc., etc." So we've got mankind who are to image, reflect, represent God, told to increase themselves throughout the whole earth. Or to put it another way, to fill up the whole earth with the image of God. In other words, our whole lives are meant to reflect the person and the character of God everywhere we go, whatever we do, and by the way we live to convince people towards him. We are image bearers who are called to create more image bearers. That's our original work mandate. That's our job description. We might do that as we raise kids and raise disciples with all that that entails. We might do that as we invite people who are far from Christ into the family of Christ and create new disciples through spiritual birth. The first part of our work is to fill up the world with image bearers like us. That is our work. 
The other thing we're commanded to do is to subdue, subdue and rule over creation. Now, those words, subdue and rule over, heard a certain way, can be heard as domineering. To subdue and rule over anything, if heard a certain way, can sound, sound like you've got to kind of break or bend something to your will. But what you've got to remember is that when these words were spoken, in a world before sin, in Eden, to subdue or to rule over something would, wouldn't have implied any sense of violence or force. In the sense for which these words were intended, and this is, this is uber important for us today, to subdue the world and to rule over its resources would have meant something a little bit more like to discover all the possibilities in the world and in its resources and in its societies and in its seasons and in its people and in its raw potential, discover those things and then bring them to fullness for God's glory. So just to kind of follow that train of thoughts. This is a very simple illustration, but I think it's a helpful one. The earth is full of soil. My garden is full of soil. Soil is a good place to grow grain. When we harvest grain, we make bread. And bread is good because it feeds and sustains societies. And it allows them to flourish and create image bearers and to subdue the earth. And so in some sense, we've discovered the potential of soil and its ability to help us to work alongside God in bringing godly order to creation and bringing life and image-bearing capability to others who can then go on and do the same. Using that example, we are learning to subdue and rule over the raw materials of the earth. That's how it was meant to be. But we know how the story goes, that when Adam and Eve fell, all of creation fell with them. The whole thing got warped. Fertile fields were cursed with thorn bushes. Animals died. Humans died. People warred with each other, often over the very sort of land that we're talking about here. And the whole ecosystem got turned upside down. So what do we do when we work? We work to redeem it. We work to redeem broken lands and broken people and broken systems and to beautify and fix and improve that in the world which is broken and to use our creativity and knowledge and our gifts to get the plan back on track to fulfill the command to fill up the whole world with the image of God and to unlock all the possibilities around us to fill the earth with his glory to make something of our patch of the world for the glory of God. That's a theology of work. That's what work is meant to achieve. That's what it means to work alongside God. Whatever it is that you do, whether you earn money doing it or not. One of my, um, my favourite hobbies, I don't really get time to do it much anymore, is, is oil painting. For me, there is something about what I've just talked about, which is well represented, I believe, by the act of taking blank canvas and then applying thick coats of paint on it, using uh, whatever ability God's given me to create something with just a handful of raw materials. It also references something else. In times past, if you wanted to become a master painter, you would normally serve for many years as an apprentice to a master painter. And over the course of many years of training, the master would train the apprentice in their own style. So the apprentice would start in year one, mixing the paints and stretching the canvas and washing the brushes, and so on it would go until he got to a point where he had, where the process had succeeded, be able to literally image the master 
such that he himself could create a masterpiece. That's where the phrase masterpiece comes from. And at times where that process had succeeded, it would actually be quite difficult to determine whether the master himself had created it or the apprentice. That's why there's so much art fraud in the world, because it's very easy to um, mimic the style of a master. That was kind of the point in those days. And so the greatest painters in history, Leonardo da Vinci, would have served a master in order to one day themselves achieve something that could be classified as something that a master themselves might do. And on some occasions, it would be possible for the master to dictate, or maybe even himself begin the painting, and then get the apprentice to add in all the detail and fill up the canvas with a style that represented the master's style exactly. And that's what we have in creation. The master creates the outline. He gives us the materials that we need to obey his command to fill up the earth and to master it ourselves. But he tells us to do it in a way that points back to him, that reflects him, that represents him. We get to create a masterpiece within the outline style of the master's masterpiece, whatever it is that you're doing with your days. Tomorrow morning when you get up for paid employment or to look after the kids or to go to your place of study or to do the gardening or whatever it is that you do with your time, think about the master painter. You're, you're his apprentice tomorrow. And every day thereafter, fill in the blank spaces with his glorious style. And just as an aside, this means that we're also supposed to look after creation the way that God would as well. Care for it and care for each other and give each other great dignity. That in itself is an act of creating God's glory in the area that he's given you. And so if our work is meant to image God, then it's worth considering what his work is. Aside from the clues we see at the start and the end of the story that God creates paradise and then we break it and then he creates it again, here's a little verse. This is a brilliant verse from Colossians 1, which I think explains very well the mission of God and therefore the mission and the work of his people. We sometimes talk about kind of mountain peaks in scripture. All scripture is good. It's all um, God-breathed and good for training and equipping. But every now and again, you get a little mountain peak, which I think helps to explain a concept with greater clarity. This is one of those mountain peaks. I'd really suggest you kind of get this in you. This is from Colossians 1. And this is God speaking, or this is the the word speaking about Jesus. It says, For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things on heaven or in earth by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. What is God doing? God is reconciling all things to himself. He is restoring all the brokenness back to its intended form. People and places and dolphins and donuts and lecterns and llamas. God's work is to fix it all, and it gets fixed by being in restored relationship with him. For God to be reconciling things and people to himself means that he's restoring peace and wholeness to broken things and to broken people. He's creating shalom. 
Shalom is a, a concept that we've been discussing on Fridays in our Gatehouse Life Group. We've been discussing what it means to help people in poverty, because poverty is the opposite of shalom. Shalom is a Hebrew word that denotes peace and harmony and wholeness and completeness and welfare. It is the fullness of things. That's what heaven will be full of. And I believe heaven will be full of really interesting, exciting work as well. But importantly, we're called to work alongside God, bringing shalom to people and places here and now too. How does your work bring shalom? How do you bring shalom with your spare time if you're retired? Or with your kids if you're looking after them at home or at your university? When I'm, when I'm painting that picture, one of the things that I'm aware of as I enjoy the rest that it gives me is that it's in some way might mimic this, this very concept of shalom. I'm, I'm taking raw materials, chaos if you like, and I'm bringing them all together to create something of order and hopefully of beauty. Doesn't that sound like what God did at the start of time? Doesn't that sound like what the Bible says heaven promises? Doesn't that sound like what Jesus did on the cross? His death on the cross, the, the shedding of his blood, means that he now brings together all the brokenness and the chaos of humanity, and he offers and restores shalom to us, wholeness of relationship. How does what we do as we work alongside God bring shalom, bring beauty? Let me read you that um, that same passage of scripture, this is Colossians 1, from the message, which is a paraphrase of the Bible. I, I really love this paraphrasing of it. So that same passage says, he, Jesus, was supreme in the beginning, and leading the resurrection parade, he is supreme in the end. From beginning to end, he's there, towering far above everything, everyone. So spacious is he, so roomy, that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms, get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies, all because of his death, his blood that's poured down from the cross. That's God's work. That's our work. That's what he's doing in the world. That's what he's doing in your life. If you're in paid employment, then tomorrow morning, serve your earthly master with integrity and honor and respect, and by doing a full day's labor. And as you do it, make sure you're doing it in a way that helps to humanize people as well, and leaves a mark of integrity, and importantly, works to redeem and bring order and beauty to disorder and chaos, and helps to reconcile and strengthen relationships. And whether you're in paid employment or not, get to work tomorrow morning anyway, having Sabbathed properly today and do exactly the same. We're, we're called to work. We're commissioned by God to develop his world and to fill up the earth with his glory. In that sense, there's, there's no kind of divine secular divide. I think sometimes people think, well, I get to do this stuff to serve the church and then I go to my nine to five. I, as I said earlier, work for the church. I previously worked for a global corporation that wasn't the church. One day, God willing, I'll be retired from paid employment. My to-do list will look very different in those three seasons of life. 
but my commission will be exactly the same. Co-work with God. Bring beauty to ugly situations. Redeem brokenness. Fix relationships. Create more image bearers of the king who look and live like we're meant to. If you need to, come off the bench. Come out of kingdom retirement. Get to work. There's a whole world out there. We're meant to fill it up with the glory of God. So, so how, do we, how do we do that? What are the pillars around which we should base this activity, whether it be paid or otherwise? I think that there are, there are two things, fundamentally, that we're called to do. First thing is we're called to be gardeners. We are called to cultivate. We're called to grow things. That's what multiplying means. You take something and you increase it. We should grow food and families and other things that serve the human race in the name of godliness. And to be clear, we're we're not called just to create humans, but to create godly human society. It's not about procreation, it's about civilization. That's that's what Adam and Eve were asked to do. And in a pre-sin state, they, just like us, were not called to kind of somehow beat back hostile terrain or in some way pave over thorns and thistles, but to tend it as a gardener shapes and beautifies a garden. Again, taking the raw materials of creation and bringing order and goodness to it, bringing shalom to it. If you're a musician, partner with God by how you take disparate notes and bring them together to form harmony. If you're a student, take, take the problems of today and work out how you can take these thorns and thistles and bring them under control for the well-being and the flourishing of human society. If you're a project manager, take all the broken and chaotic pieces in a, in a process and get them together in order so that systems work and people relate. <coughs> And do it with integrity and rigor and faithfulness so that your work points to the glory of God and his reconciling, fixing, ordering, saving work in your life as well. This is a a slightly long quote from Tim Keller on this very point, but it's, it's so helpful. He says, when we take fabric and make a piece of clothing... When we push a broom and clean up a room, when we use technology to harness knowledge, when we take an unformed, naive human mind, parents and teachers perhaps, when we teach a couple how to resolve their relational disputes, when we take simple materials and turn them into a poignant work of art, we are continuing God's work of forming, filling, and subduing. Whenever we bring order out of chaos, whenever we draw out creative potential, whenever we elaborate and unfold creation beyond where it was when we found it, we're allowing God's pattern of creative cultural development. In fact, our word culture comes from this idea of cultivation. Just as he subdued the earth in his work of creation, so he now calls us to labor as his representatives in a continuation and extension of that work of subduing. So whether we're splicing a gene or doing brain surgery or collecting rubbish or painting a picture, if our work further develops, maintains, or repairs the fabric of the world, then we're in some way connecting our work to God's work. And so if if cultivating is one of the pillars around which we're supposed to base our work, then I would suggest that the other one 
is service. We're called to serve. We need to learn to see our work as an act of service. Jesus, of course, showed us best how to connect work with service. It was a a complete hallmark of his work all the way to the cross. The American sociologist Robert Bella says that we must recover the idea that work is a vocation or a calling. It's not just a Mac job that you go to nine to five. It's a contribution to the good of all and not merely a means to one's own advancement. And so the question we should ask is not what will make me the most money or gain me the greatest benefit, but how with my existing abilities and opportunities can I be of greater service to other people knowing what I do of God's will and of human need? Let's just go back to 1 Peter 2 for a moment. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. Just want to say that Peter isn't commentating on slavery as an institution here. Sometimes their argument is levied against the Bible, that it somehow promotes slavery. That's, that's a red herring. It just doesn't. Scripture often just reports the reality of everyday life in the first century. It talks about people eating lots of fish. It doesn't say whether it's a good or a bad thing. Peter recognizes that the reality of the economic and social world in his time is that there are masters and there are servants. And the New Testament tends to preoccupy itself, not necessarily with the socio-political evils of the age, but with the renewal of individuals. But if enough individuals are renewed, so is society. And that should be our challenge as we work. We need to work in such a way that cultivates and serves and brings renewal to individuals such that the gospel transforms our societies too. And all modern slavery stops and poverty is dealt with and all the lost and the broken parts of our world find their shalom in Jesus. So let me, let me in response to that, ask you three questions. The first one is, how does your life, your work, reflect God's plan for us to increase in number, fill up the earth with his image, and bring order and renewal and reconciliation? Like, like seriously, when you, when you get home today, get a pen and a piece of paper and start to articulate some of the stuff. Don't, don't just let these be blessed thoughts. Get real. Articulate what it is that your work is and articulate how you can fulfill the cultural mandate from Genesis 1. Second question, all of us, whether we're paid for it or not, have work to do. And this question is for everyone in the room, regardless of your age or stage. Do you need to come out of retirement? I obviously don't mean paid employment retirement, but in terms of the work that's laid out in front of us to co-labor with God, have you stopped too soon? God willing, one day I'll come to the end of my paid employment and I'll be able to afford to retire. But if I have my health and God wills it, I tend to be every bit as active, if not more, in terms of serving the church and working to create gospel communities wherever I go. If I can still swing a golf club, and I'm hoping to be able to do more of that then than I do now, I'll be swinging a golf club and telling people about Jesus. And if I can work in my workshop using all my power tools, I'll be doing that to create beautiful things in the world. And if God grants that I have grandchildren, then I'm praying, and I'm I'm really genuinely praying that even now, that I'll be able to sow gospel into them as well and serve my two daughters as they parent those grandchildren. 
And I might not be preaching quite so much, but I'll be praying for and supporting younger preachers because there is no such thing as retirement in the kingdom of God. I found one of the most helpful kind of attitude changes in uh, working in the world and serving God is when you can change the phrase, oh man, I have to do this, to, oh wow, I get to do this. People, we get to work with Jesus. That's the dignity that he shows you and the very high regard that he holds you in because he loves you. Work changes throughout your life, but it doesn't stop until the very end. Gospel work, cultivating, serving, telling, that's a job for life. And if you're a Christian, get dressed. It's time for work. Final question. Do you need to fight laziness? There's something I've noticed about the crazy, frenetic, ever-connected world that we live in, which makes us think that we're being productive, but is actually just a breeding ground for laziness. Don't get me wrong, there's a place for Netflix or looking at Facebook, but how's your prayer life? How's your reading? How's your life of service in the church? How's your gospel witness in BCP? You see, the, the kind of work that I'm talking about doesn't necessarily mean lifting heavy logs over your head all day long. As we've seen, gospel work, partnering with God, takes on different forms. But in the same way, it definitely isn't binging on Netflix and force-feeding yourself pizza. That's sloth. And sloth is a deadly sin. We need to create healthy rhythms of work and of rest. That's a gift that Jesus has given us that no first century slave had. Because here's the secret. Because of who he is, God's work is rest. When we're aligned with the Father's will, engaged with his purposes, busy about his business, then we are working not towards the next rest, but from a place of rest. And then one day a week, we cease from all our labor and we Sabbath. The fourth commandment. We Sabbath. We remember that we are no longer a people under Pharaoh's whips. And we feast on everything good that God has given us. Nature, sunshine, food, family, Jesus. And we recreate. We literally recreate everything in our lives and our relationships that is in any way decreated or uncreated. That's where we get the word recreation from. It's literally recreation. That's what the Sabbath is for. Here's the final word on work this morning, because I'm aware that a message like this can sound very much that all you've got to do is more stuff. But actually, that's, that's not at all what I'm saying. I'm saying that you need to find and be aligned with God's work wherever you are. But there's a kind of work that we can actually rest in this morning as well. That's the finished work of Christ on the cross. The finished work of Christ on the cross of Calvary has dealt with all our sin and our shame and our guilt, and it's taken away the requirement for us to work to be saved. We work with God precisely because we are saved. In that way, he has purchased our rest for us. That's the very nature of grace. We're to work hard and diligently because it's good to work hard and diligently 
But our salvation, our relationship with the Father is free because Jesus earned it for us on the cross through his work. We don't earn our salvation. Salvation came to us long before we found our way to it. We're not saved because we work. We work because we're saved. That is grace, to be sure. And it's good news. And this rest, this grace, this salvation is freely available to you this morning. You've just got to say yes to Jesus in your heart. Matt might explain how to do that a little bit more later on. Can you hear the call of Jesus this morning? All of this that he's done, he did because he loved you. And he eagerly desires to know you and for you to know him. That's why he went to the cross. We can submit to our master, the master, knowing that he has completed all his work for once and for all on our behalf. Let me, uh, let me just close by reading you an excerpt of a poem by an American pastor called John Piper. John was coming to the end of his paid career as a pastor, and he was grappling with what the next season would, was, would look like. And he was, he was worried that his kind of retirement years would just slip into inactivity and sloth and purposelessness. And this is how he made sense of that. He actually wrote a poem to sloth. And this is an excerpt. It says... We're made and made again to be co-makers with the maker of the world. To see the world above and then to make the world below more beautiful. To learn, to know, and then to make, to shape, to adorn, compose, produce, and turn a thorn into an etching tool. To write, to say what has never been said that way. To sing, to draw, to paint, to build, to stitch and weave until we've filled this world with truth. For this God spoke and Jesus died. This is our work, our happy work. You will not take my work, sloth. We were born to make. Let's pray. King Jesus, thank you so much that your finished work on the cross of Calvary means that we can cease from all work that seeks to, in some way, buy or find salvation in you. Thank you that that's a free gift this morning. Thank you that irrespective of who we are or what we've done, that is freely available to the willing heart. God, I pray that for my brothers and sisters and I this morning, that we would, however, get a kind of a a sense of what it means and what we're called to, to work in this world, to co-labor with you, Thank you that you've shown us great dignity in calling us into that. God, I pray that you'd help us to beautify, to multiply, to fill up the earth. Lord, to bring honor and glory to your name wherever we go. And as image bearers ourselves, to create image bearers all across the globe. I ask this in Jesus' name for your glory. Amen.